Hello, everybody, and welcome to Behind the Movement. I am Kyle Fincham. Thank you for being here or downloading or streaming, however you're listening. I'm really excited to share this recent conversation I had with Stephen Jenkinson. It was a a really wonderful and and special experience for me. Um, So we'll get to that in just a moment. I just wanted to remind everybody that our new Movement Brooklyn online virtual platform is up and running and happening and live and available. Um, I teach one live class every week on there. Uh, Currently, it's on Monday afternoon, evening, maybe morning, depending on where you're at in the world. Uh, But we always make the recording available for everybody on on the platform. And... Uh, We also have about 100 hours of classes that I recorded during the the initial quarantine lockdown um, at the beginning of the year, kind of up until August. And, you know, we also are are building a community on there. It's, uh, you know, the content, I would say, is really a, a fraction of what we're doing. What we're really trying to do is is be a place for curiosity and, and conversation in and around and about movement and and all the things that come with it. So we also do office hours and, and that's an opportunity to to have some conversations about your practice or programming and, and maybe I can give some advice wherever I see it, it's fitting, but I think it's also a nice open dialogue between all of us that are on there participating. Um, I like to think of myself as, as just as much of an explorer as everybody else who's uh who's on there with us. Um so we do that as well and then and we have like a, a live feed where everybody can chime in and communicate and share with one another. So um yeah, it's not a one way conversation. The conversation is uh it, it goes always and, and, and we all learn and benefit and, and, and help one another. So I hope you'll join us. If you're interested in that you can go to members dot movementbrooklyn.com or you can just go to movementbrooklyn.com and uh there there will be a tab there for you to to follow to the platform so let's get to today's conversation i was really fortunate to get connected to stephen jenkinson um i read uh one of his books recently and i also watched a um, a documentary based on the work that he's doing or, or on his work called Grief Walker uh, on Amazon Prime. And a friend of mine uh, has done some studying for a while at um, Stephen Jenkinson's Orphan Wisdom School and, and offered to put me in touch with him. And we agreed that it, it would be a really interesting conversation to have for this podcast. So everything kind of lined up and and we got to chat last week and uh it was special in so many ways and i think you'll you'll enjoy listening as much as i enjoyed getting to participate in the conversation um but to give you some background um steven is an activist a teacher an author and a farmer and he's the founder of the orphan wisdom school up in canada He's written a number of books, including uh, the book that I read called Die Wise, A Manifesto for Sanity and Soul. 
um, which is award-winning and uh, a really special book about grief and dying and the great love of life. In 2015, he created the Knights of Grief and Mystery with the Canadian songwriter Gregory Hoskins. And with a five-piece band, they've mounted international tours and released three albums. And they recently released um, two albums. One is called Dark Roads, and the other one is called Rough Gods. And at the end of our interview here, I'm going to play out the podcast with um, one of the pieces from Rough Gods. So as the conversation comes to a close, if you keep listening, it'll roll right into um, that piece from Rough Gods. If you're interested in um, some live stream speaking opportunities that that Stephen is doing um, or any other work that they're doing or the potential of um, downloading the albums, you can go to orphanwisdom.com. With that said, here is my conversation with Stephen Jenkinson. Stephen, so nice to meet you. Uh, sort of, yes. Sort of. It's nice to meet your voice. Thank you, and you, you, yours as well. Thank you. Um, well, first, I just wanted to say thank you for doing this. It's it's really uh, an honor and a pleasure. I just finished reading Die Wise. Yeah. And I watched Grief Walker not long after, and I okay. I also uh, attended. Uh, you, your your performance in New York City a couple years ago. Oh, the debacle! Did you? It, it was a bit of a debacle, but I but I but I I was there to the end. Ah, uh, yeah. And yeah, I just have to say that that the work you're doing and the and the things that you're thinking about and the approaches are are really unique to me and and have caused me to to really think and observe in, in some new and interesting ways. So I, I appreciate the, the time and energy that you've put to your life and your practice and, and your work. Well, you're very kind. I, you know, anytime that it goes that far or that deep or that purposefully into somebody's life, you know, when you're on this end of things, you can manage the intent to some degree but you can't and probably shouldn't be able to manage the consequence. Mm. And, uh, and so, you know, I just have to hear about it. I imagine it on the one side and hear about it on the other side. Mm. And so it's a very, uh, it's a grace making thing to know that that's true for you. And I appreciate you telling me. Well, it, it couldn't be, uh, it couldn't be true. And I, and I, I'm, I'm happy to hear that it, that it lands so well. Um, I wanted to, to chat with you about a number of things. I, I don't know if if James told you, but yeah, I, I teach movement, which is a, a, a broad practice where we want to kind of explore the capacities of our, our physical potential, not limited yeah. to any one domain. And when I watched Grief Walker, I realized uh, you're, you, you do a lot of woodworking and a lot of crafting. And I was told you do sculpting as well. A lot of work with your hands, um, really heavy, like physical participation in the world and in your home. Yeah. And I'm curious about 
that and also what that means to to building culture and building a home. Mm. Okay, over to me. Yes, sir. <laughs> okay. Well, man, you know, to speak with any authority about your the settler of one's inclinations, uh, which is what you're asking me to refer to now, mm-hmm. is always a hazard to mm-hmm. me, and uh, and should be approached with great. Um, um, I don't know, something close to hesitation. So that's what you'll perhaps hear. I, I knew when I was in the late teens, early 20s, I probably um, tried to invite myself into the world of visual art through painting. And I was, you know, there was two dilemmas. The one dilemma was that I didn't have much of a gift for it. The other dilemma was that I didn't trust it. Now that's a very strange, that second one <laughs> Very strange, mm-hmm. but I came. I came to understand after a while that my disinclination was really rooted in that sense that there's something insubstantial about painting. Now I'm not saying this about anyone else's work. I should, you know, quick to say it, but in terms of my own practice, that's what I felt that I it there was not a, a material presence either in my hands or or under my hands for that matter, and. Uh, and it was, it, in a sense, it was a kind of empty thing. Uh, so no wonder I didn't have any skill for the thing, given that proclivity. And I was not really probably alert to the possibility of a three-dimensional undertaking in the art world. But that's how I ended up stone carving. Hmm. I, know, I know that much, that I went to stone carving kind of by default in hopes that there would be something uh, real in the world that would be on the other end of whatever I was trying to accomplish. And sure enough, obviously, and of course, that's exactly what happened. Why stone as opposed to anything else? Well, I think what stone did was I understood it very quickly to be time slowed down enough to submit not submit, to, to appear in my hands, let's say. In other words, the geology is what I'm talking about. And uh, there was something about the privilege of being able to carve something of the earth's mantle, which was so uh, really stirring and always has been, even though I haven't done it for a long time, I would still, I would still describe my feelings about it that way. So, um, it was really a desire to have the world um, be alert to my ministrations, not the world as in public opinion. I mean the physical, tangible, living world. That I, this was my, uh, I suppose, my devotion, as I think about it. And um, I was lucky to find it. And I was lucky that the timing in my life was such that I was able to undertake it without huge sacrifice on the home front. And uh, for a very brief period of time, it was uh, a lousy living, but a great way of life. So much much similar to farming <laughs> in that regard. <laughs> mm-hmm. That is a lousy living too, but a remarkable uh, thing to give your life to. And, you know, uh, when I ended up in the death trade sometime after that, 
I came across a little bit of urban mythology, I suppose, that's inside the trade, that there was a person uh, working in Australia as a, as a nurse in palliative care, and she would, as a, as a matter of course, do a straw poll with all of the dying people that she worked with over the years, some finding some way to inquire after their deepest, most enduring or most calamitous regret that they were coming to their dying time uh, in the presence of in their life. And she said the one that came heads and tails more frequently than any other one was the regret of having, quote, worked too much, unquote. That's what they said. That's what they called it. And I think, you know, to translate it, I don't think they meant work. I think they meant a kind of um, default employment that drew them away from their work. They didn't say it that way, but I think that's what they were talking about. And the reason I mention it is because I was enormously lucky, have been really since that time, to have been engaged in a, in a work that I would never come to my dying time regretting an over-involvement in. I referred to working stone as a privilege, working with your hands as a privilege, seeing that the thing exists on the other side, regardless of people's interpretation or response to it is a privilege. And uh, being able to look at something you did 25 or 30 years down the road, in my case, sitting in fields here in my farm, I mean, that's an immense privilege. And I have a grandson who looks at them and then looks at me and tries to figure out what kind of connection there could possibly be between those two things. And that's a privilege. I found, so recently I, I, I carved a couple things and did a little bit of woodworking, really my, my first experiences, but you know, with really simple tools. And I found that there's this unique playfulness in, in these acts and it, it captures this, um, I don't know, like this surprise and discovery that I think, uh, maybe many of us lack, but I know that I felt like I hadn't had that experience. And, you know, I don't know, as you were speaking, it, 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 the word playfulness kept coming to my mind. Mm. And, and, and yeah, I think that, you know, play is, is often how we get to make discoveries and, and, and surprise ourselves. And, and it's almost as if, and maybe you'd grow, I don't know if you would agree or not, but it's almost like we, we, we want to deny ourselves surprises to, to be in control or something. <laughs> yeah, perhaps so. Certainly, <clears throat> playfulness is one of the ways available to us to stumble across our lives. Hmm. You know, you can look down in the context of mirth or, um, or distractedness even and say, wow, that, that looks so much like why I'm here. I mean, you can't, I don't know that you can do this at 14, right? Mm -hmm. You have to cross a lot of things off the list as to why you're here before you can come across the likely candidates, right? It's something like going through life as a teenager, trying to figure out, quote, who you are. There's a lot of people you try on, of course, before, before the real thing the only thing that's left to you begins to, by default, begins to appear, you know, by process of elimination, it does. Mm -hmm. Yeah, as to the other thing you mentioned, um, 
you know, playfulness was not a word that occurred to me in the context that I was talking about, largely because the, the, this physical work of stone carving is considerable and ongoing and, and a little bit hard on your health too, mm -hmm. I should say, even if you're taking precautions. But I suppose play, you know, the, the Latin word root for this word, our word play, is the root, root word for the, the adjective ludicrous. You may know that. The L-U-D is the Latin for play. Homo ludens was the human being, the game player, or yeah, the, yeah, the, the, the maker-upper of things, you could say. Mm -hmm. And that, what's it there for? I don't think it's there, to be honest, for self-expression. Um, I know self. I know I'm I'm going out on a limb here and losing a lot of friends more or less instantly when I say so. <laughs> I, I don't I don't hold self-expression in very high esteem, to be frank. Um, it it implies a degree of precision about the self that's that's way overstated, and I'm not sure it's that precious. This having a self and being so alert to its uh, to its uh, inclinations. I'm much more uh, interested in uh, being a citizen than being a self. And by that, you can probably hear my inclination is to uh, a kind of social cultural uh, membership and to insinuate the sense of responsibility uh, much more than the sense of right that comes from that citizenship. And I understood what I was doing in the stone carving as that as an act of, of citizenship. Now it's a stretch for most people to recognize it that way, but I was lucky enough to recognize it fairly early. And I never saw myself doing quote what I wanted. I was hearing some other um, metronome, if you will, some other, um, some other nudge. And, uh, you know, not, not to, sound too elevated about it, but there's a degree of taking dictation from the great beyond uh, that can come to you when you engage in something that you feel a high degree of compulsion for, but not a high degree of mastery at. The gap between those two things seems to be where the gods can have their way with you. Yeah, I, I, when I, when I hear you talk about citizenship, I, the word, like, uh, selfless, kind of comes to my mind. So it's a, uh, you know, approaching these acts with a, like a selfless nature, mm. as opposed to, um, you know, self-expression almost feeling like a, a more selfish nature. Is that is that right? Yeah, something like self-optional. Mm. I don't know if selfless is is that achievable being a Western person, a Western born mm -hmm. person. I mean, we're certainly born into the, the orthodoxy of self, no? And um, it's a much stronger compulsion, I think, than the, old, than the old version of monotheism that we're born to was. Um, the self is the real only God of the 21st century. Mm -hmm. So... I'm an apostate, I suppose, and it sounds like you're inclined to be one yourself. Might be. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, and I, I feel like as you're as you're speaking about this, you're kind of leading into this place that I 
when I was reading some of your work and watching the documentary, I suddenly realized that I throw around the word culture pretty loosely. Yeah. And I don't, I don't think I actually know what culture is and, and how I should be using it appropriately. Mm -hmm. Um, Because I, I, you know, in your book, you, you, you kind of question that, you know, North American culture is cultureless. Mm-hmm. And I think I'd love, you know, where I come from in, in the movement world, we, we use the term movement culture quite a bit. Mm-hmm. And again, you know, kind of feeling like I don't know what culture is. I, I, I'd love for you to discuss culture and, and, and building culture and, and maybe, yeah, I, I don't know. I, I'm, I'm just so curious because it's, like I said, it's something I feel like I've, I've used a lot, but now I realize I don't know so well. Yeah. Well, it's, this is a great way station on the way towards understanding something is realizing you don't know these things too terribly well. Yeah. It's a useful place to end up. It's threadbare in the furniture department, but it's, <laughs> there's a lot of shelter there. Mm. Well, the first thing I should say is uh, let me not come across as a culture boss you know, or some kind of culture maven or anything of the kind. But I could wonder about it with the best of them, and I'm happy to do that. So typically, as I hear it, um, the word is culture, excuse me, the word culture is used as a kind of inevitability, not as a kind of achievement. If you think about any sense of the inevitable that is attended to you in your days, you realize that none of those things that seem inevitable have much in the way of serious merit attached to them. Let's use dying as the obvious example. You know, death and taxes, right? The standard joke or not joke or whatever it is. And uh, first of all, if you're really rich, taxes are far from inevitable, obviously. And then on the death thing, the implication here is that you're going to die come what may. And uh, you've had a look at die wise, you mentioned, and um, you probably have a sense of what's coming next from me. And, and that's the, the clear uh, grammatical observation to be made in the English language, that the verb to die is not a passive verb and you can't use it passively and make any sense in the English language. Okay. Why is that? Because the English language, despite its, its many, detractors, has remarkable wisdom in this regard. The English language is whispering to you every day that you use it, that dying is not what happens to you. It's what you do. It can only be used as an active verb, you see, and mm-hmm. obeying, you know, the grammar. So this is a wonderful thought to think, no matter what it does to you. The, the idea that it's not inevitable that you will die. Why? Because it's what you do. If it's what you do, you know, it's the jury's out on whether you're going to do it or not. And in what form you're going to do it and, and to what degree you'll do it and, and how mindful you'll be as you kind of do it, sort of do it, prefer not to do it, refuse outright to do it and so forth. Dying is far from inevitable. I mean, the collapse of your physical sensoria uh, is not something you accomplish. This will have its way with you regardless. 
But if you credit dying with as a whole person phenomenological uh, event, that you are the deep participant and um, what's the word I need? You are the, the trustee of your dying, not the owner of it. You see, mm -hmm. all of these things, be, and you can hear my understanding of citizenship coming around here, mm -hmm. that if you put all these together, these things together, you get an understanding that dying has tremendous merit after all because it asks so much of you and does so little to you. It's not inevitable. And there's nothing in our world, from what I can see, that if it's credited with being inevitable, is held in particular high esteem by us. Culture would be another example then. Generally speaking, the people I've grown up with and, and, and I'm obliged to contend with <laughs> fairly routinely would come to an understanding that culture is the inevitable consequence of enough vaguely like-minded people stopping moving around, bumping into each other and deciding this is what they are. See, So you can hear that there's a kind of, I don't know, it's something like the weather or it's a kind of... Um, uh, irreconcilable force of nature that humans just glom together and their glomming is what we mean by culture. Uh, but I would prefer to reserve the word for something like an accomplishment. Now, I'm going to tell a little bit of a story at your nationality's expense. Okay. And it goes like this. It's <laughs> like, you don't need another one. I know it's been a rough... <laughs> Couple of years. It has sure. been a rough couple of years, but I'm but I'm but I'm I'm ready to take it. Okay. <laughs> this is not actually light. This is actually grievous in its observation. But there you are. Outsiders, I mean it's the same for us here in this side of the line. Outsiders can often see you in a way that you'd prefer not to be seen. No? It's mm -hmm. just it's just the way it is. Okay, it doesn't mean they're always right but it means even their errors in seeing you can be useful to you. So there's a minor French Lord named de Tocqueville who does the standard European rich man tour of the American frontier right in around 1803 or four or five, something like this. And uh, he writes, of course, a, another a travelogue about it with one possibly long title. And he's got a line in there that it goes like this, America, perhaps the only place on earth that has gone from frontierism to barbarism without passing through the intermediate stage of civilization. Mm. In other words, you guys happen too fast for your own good, mm. right? And the, the extraordinary technical benefits that, that were deriving from the Industrial Revolution came to you too young in your national advent. You see what I'm saying? So, so alas, I don't think he's entirely wrong. And uh, being your neighbor, we're often obliged to contend with this on a couple of levels. One of them is we're, you know, we try to find myriad ways to not quite be uh, like the American thing tends to be. And yet the influence that you um, disseminate across the world, I mean, is, is most um, impactful here 
because uh, we allegedly share a language and a few other things, and we don't have a lot of filters, right? So this may not be where your question was headed, but this is the real world too, what we're talking about. And, and you know, questions of citizenship, excuse me, citizenship pertain to what we're talking about now. I would say that what a culture could be instead of uh, the inevitable consequence of people just hanging around is that they, they come to the world fundamentally and first as animists. And their orthodoxy, if it could be called that, is the understanding of their subjugation to the world that grants them their lives. And I'm, I'm not just talking about their physical lives in terms of nutrition and sustenance and oxygen, but certainly all of that. But the subsequent you know, understanding at the mythic and poetic level that we are nurtured and sustained by something that in our pseudo-cultural garb, we mangle and leave for dead with a kind of frequency, a regularity, that if we were to see it for what it really was, would, I think, break our heart so fundamentally, it's not clear that we would survive the insight. So you could say then that a culture in a time like ours is a people that is willing to be, to have its habits undone by the realization of what it brings to bear upon the place. Sorry, I didn't take the phone off the hook. Obviously. That's okay. We'll just let it ring a couple of times and then it'll <laughs> stop. Oh, it stopped by itself. There we are. Um, well, I got thrown off the scent there towards the end, but uh, I think the gist of what I was trying to get to, I got to. Yeah, you, culture you, first and foremost is 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 a great epic achievement, but not an elevating one. If anything, uh, a human culture is a circumstance in which we are more Terranian. I don't think that's a word, but I'm using it now. We're more Terranian than we are celestial. We're more earthbound than we are, you know, ascending. And that earthboundness uh, speaks well of us, number one, and, and promises the world a decent shot at surviving our presence. Hmm. As you were speaking, I... I was reminded of the discussion in Die Wise about um, obedience, and oh, yeah. and it it makes me think. And you can correct me, but it's it's as if we're talking about approaching culture not as an individual but as a citizen, and therefore also approaching the world as a citizen and not an individual. And that would be embracing that that idea of obedience if we were going to approach it that way yeah obedience saves you from the understanding that the only kind of citizen there is is a nation state you know hireling mm -hmm. that's a very very recent contentious and hopefully time limited proposition but i i like what you know what you've imagined there then the idea that well sorry let me come to it differently I'm not saying that you could be, quote, a world citizen. 
In fact, I would say that you certainly can't be a world citizen. Why not? Well, well, the world is in a, is a is an idea. You know, it's like that famous shot from space, right? With the blue marble hovering there mm. and us trying to imagine ourselves there. It's simply too great an abstraction, the world. But you might say that your citizenship you owe to a particular piece of ground that so far hasn't turned you out. So in other words, local and specific in particular, which is what the word indigenous means etymologically. It has nothing to do with, you know, particular skin color or, or you know, first citizen or first human inhabitant or any of that. The word indigenous, it's not used correctly anymore, but it means to have been born inside. It's a very place specific um, understanding of, of quote self. And in that sense, the human is not at the center of an indigenous identity. In fact, probably you couldn't even use the phrase indigenous identity and apply it to humans. Or if you're going to, you apply it equally to deer and to um, you know, wolves and to granite and to birch trees. It's very, very particular, right? And this, this is what makes our, our citizenship real, is that it's not a vocation. It's, it's, not a, it's not a matter of advocacy. It's a matter of, of being willing to take dictation from the sometimes savage particulars of the limitations that are around you and that inform your days. And you understand that limits are the way by which your, your humanity can appear. And your refusal to live by those limitations is you flirting with some kind of association with the divine. The last time I checked, every time humans begin to muck about with the divine, something suffers terribly. It's um, I, after I read your book. Um, so we, my wife and I, we live in, in Boulder, Colorado for now. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And we've, we've gotten to spend a lot of time exploring the mountains and, and hiking. And after you, I read your book, I found myself, every time I saw an animal f- reflecting on, on this idea of obedience, that they, they are obedient to, to these unwritten laws or something despite complete freedom and, and was thinking more about, uh, you know, reflecting, reflecting that. And it brought me to a book that I had read, uh, also written, I think it was written by somebody who, I think he's from Canada. I know he taught at U of T for a while, Marshall McLuhan. Oh yes. He's Canadian. Yeah. Um, and I read understanding media and, you know, I spent a lot of time thinking about this, you know, our, our senses are constantly being distanced from the actual experience. Like, uh, you know, we have layers of skin outside of our real skin and, and layers of eyes outside of our real eyes and our ears. And I was almost thinking that we, I had to almost maybe try to shed some of these technological layers 
to be more, and to use your word, a, a citizen of of my my place. Mm. That that perhaps some of these technologies and things that that are extensions of my nervous system get in the way a bit. I don't think they are extensions of your nervous system. Hmm. Uh, I think they're an extension of your will. Hmm. This is a radically different thing. Okay, let's try this on for size. I'm going to go back a little bit in your formulation, if you don't mind, mm-hmm. and respond along the way, and then offer you like an alternative take on things uh, to the one that you ended the question with. So you characterize the wild animals that you come across in your travels as being, I think you said, completely free. Hmm. Okay. So I'm going to suggest, as you might guess, I'm going to take some exception and and suggest that given our normal understanding of what freedom means, wild animals are not free at all. Mm -hmm. They're not free to be and do what, quote, ever they want, unquote. Mm -hmm. They have a very particular thing allocated to them, which you could call wolfness or elkness or spiderness, you see? And th- these things don't overlap tremendously. Nor do you find, I don't think, enormous individual self-expression range right. in the context of being a deer. If for, for example, they don't creep. Just want to, do they want to creep? <laughs> I mean, <laughs> there's no way of answering the question, but my answer would be probably not. Why not? It wouldn't be a thing for a deer to want. Well, why not? Well, because they're not free to not be a deer. That's why, you see. Mm -hmm. So one of two things, either we agree that they're free, but we change our understanding, understanding what freedom is, or we agree they're probably not free the way we normally mean it. Yeah, that's what that, I think. That's what I was I was trying to describe. That it's uh, our definition of freedom is almost confused because they are free, but they're they're obedient to yeah. the, this other thing. They're they're bound, mm-hmm. and that's what a nature is uh, a nature or a you know set of proclivities or something. They're bound. They're trustees of that, and they're it's entrusted to them. And this is how wolfness or dearness comes into the world. And it's the only way it comes into the world. So that could be seen as much as burden as it is freedom. And I go one step further and suggest to you, every real human freedom, deeply examined, is a burden for humans to find a way to carry. That's what it is. So it's never freedom from, it's freedom to. Okay, second thing I wanted to suggest to you goes something like this. I stumbled on this a couple of years ago. We have a thing uh, in the English language called a tool. We know what it is. It's a very handy thing to have when you need it. Not a great thing to be called as a human. Uh, It's not an uh, accolade to be called a tool, obviously. But if you are toolless, you will quickly discover how radically necessary tools are. I would suggest the principal characteristic of tools through human history 
has been their remarkable resemblance to some aspect of the human hand. To take a couple of handy examples, one would be a screwdriver. Well, what does that imitate? Well, if you've ever inserted your index fingernail into something to try to, to, to move it or to loosen it or whatever, you see, aha, that came first. If you've ever used a, a wrench, you know it's an elaboration of the grip. If you've ever used your fist closed to try to move something or insert something, ah, that's, uh, that's where the hammer comes from, and so on. So all of these are tools, and they're characterized by what? In this understanding, they're characterized by their resemblance to functions of the human hand. They're tied to it. They're bound to it. And they take the, they elaborate the repertoire of the human hand. Okay, I would suggest to you that it is a mark of human culture to understand tools in this fashion and to engage them accordingly. I would call cultured people those who are bound, who are um, the H-E-N-S root of apprehensive, for example, refers to the hand. You may know that. Um, prehensile means just before uh, what you might be doing with your hand. Apprehensive means the way by which you your hand engages in these various kinds of activities. It's an amazing word. So we have another word in English language. It's machine, which is where part of your question was headed. If you don't think about it much, you probably come to the involuntary conclusion that all a machine is, is an acceleration of the hand, excuse me, of the tool. That it's a very elaborate tool that probably needs some electricity and, uh, and other things, but it's just kind of exponentially a tool. I'm gonna to suggest to you, nothing could be further from the truth. <laughs> that in fact, what a machine is, is the way by which humans left the hand and its limits behind. They left their allegiance to their hand behind in taking up a machine and a machined world and understanding. Because what a machine does is, is disregards the hand entirely and elaborates by extending almost without limit the range of the human will instead. Not the hand, the will. And as soon as you extend more or less limitlessly the human will, you have artificial intelligence or what I like to call the artifice of intelligence, which is essentially bodiless, right? It has no reference to the human hand or any other part of the anatomy, except the kind of cerebellum, I suppose. But even then, you know, limitations are lamented and overcome. So, so we're in a drastic time in our lives now where we are infatuated by what we can imagine. And uh, we, there are no limits to our imagination and we, we tend to be offended or feel ourselves to be failing whenever our imaginations are quote, limited. In actual fact, most of human ancestry is lived in the presence of a deep devotion 
to what the hand is capable of and a willingness to abide by what it's not capable of. And it was a lamentable thing indeed when it went from one to the other. What's happening now is it's not even clear to me that the will is something we're living, willing to live the limits of, but there's something about the machine's take on us that seems to be more fascinating than our take on ourselves. Hmm. Um, well, I, I appreciate the, uh, the reframing of my approach because I, I really appreciate where you're coming from with that. Um, I want to, I want to switch gears just a little bit. Okay. Um, because again, like I said, I, I come, I, I, I teach movement and I've, I've kind of provided a little bit of a contrarian approach to some elements of how we approach a movement practice. And I'm curious about your thoughts because I, I was inspired by some of your ideas as I, I started framing an idea. But um, I remember reading in Die Wise, you suggesting that the there are elements of like the fitness industry that feed the 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 death phobia in some ways. I, I'm I'm probably butchering that a little bit. No, not at all. No. Um, but I've I've mentioned some ideas to people because you know part of our movement culture is is having you know resilient structures, resilient bodies, and, and some ways of attacking that is by strengthening it. And I've said that I think that sometimes we we go too far with that. And, and it, I, I hypothesize that maybe it's trying to develop some sort of illusion of control, um, an illusion of being in more control than we actually are in, a, in an uncertain world. Right. And I'm curious about your ideas and thoughts on, on this subject as well. You basically just covered it. Oh. I, mean, I, yeah, I have the same misgiving uh, that, that you've articulated there, I think. And you and I would both be outliers in the same deserted corner if we both look upon the notion of self-improvement, you know, at any level psychological or, or, or I don't like these distinctions anyway, spiritual and intellectual and physical and so on. But, um, you know, extending capacity, the, the real capacity that should be extended by virtue of our disciplined approach to things, our disciplined practice should be our willingness to be limited, mm. not flaunting the limits the willingness to be limited might be the place where our humanity has the greatest chance of earning its keep in this world. The unwillingness to be limited, the, the kind of vain glory of longer, higher, deeper, stronger, more, better growth, all of these things, frankly and obviously, have got us to the place where we are and obviously have contributed diabolically to where we have found ourselves in the world in the last, whatever it is, six, seven, eight months. 
globalization is what I'm referring to there. So, yeah, I mean, you know, in terms of health, maybe we could use this, bring this word into the conversation here. Um, Carl Jung, the psychologist, the Swiss psychologist, had a remarkable observation about this. He said, if I'm forced to choose, and oftentimes I am, I would rather be whole than be good. So if you let that sit for a second, or like a minute, really risk it all, a whole minute without deciding anything, one of the things that starts to wash over you, he's making a distinction between wholeness and goodness that's a very uncommon distinction to make. And it's inviting you to think about what your normal associations are with these two things. Okay. So let's go, let's be normal for a second, you and I, and uh, wonder about our sense of good, of being good. Where does our goodness come from? Well, if we're really candid with each other or ourselves, we would probably say, my ability to be good comes from my subtler ability to manage my bad. People who are listening might take umbrage at the words good and bad and understand. So find the, the equivalence then, if those these words are too sandbox simple. Um, but I think we know what we're referring to here. Uh, my ability to be good comes from micromanaging my bad. So failure to do that condemns me to some degree of bad life, bad behavior, you know, bad thinking, and so on. Jung is saying something so reckless by comparison uh, that it's taking us all to the, the cliff edge of a normally maintained life. And he does so this way. He's saying, my ability to be good does not come from minimizing my bad. My ability to be good comes from my lived relationship with my bad instead. That's part of what he means by whole. It's my wholeness that underwrites my capacity to be good. It's not my goodness. That's an amazing, as simple as it sounds, it's an amazing thought and it can be elaborated beyond the kind of moral code, moral behavior um, part of life, including the area that you work in, I would suspect, that you don't, your health derives from your lived relationship with what would um, compromise your health, doesn't it? Well, of course it does. This is exactly what isometrics are. You compromise the freedom, of the, the range of your movement. And for example, leaning against the wall and pressing in order to have some consequence for your movement further down the line, your range of movement. And it's the same morally and ethically and in, in terms of citizenship and so on. These limits are what's granting us our capacity to live deeply and temporarily. And there's the, there's the greatest limit of all, is that you get to be a human for a while. Yeah, I um, that this idea of wholeness is very, it's very rich. And I think 
many people get in, in from my experience maybe struggle with the with the idea because i almost feel as if people want to practice whatever their practices or their discipline potentially to demonstrate control as mm. opposed to practicing to not be in control well you see the, the way you've said it leads you back in the direction of control to practice <laughs> not being in control is an obvious though subtler form of control isn't it yeah I'm sure it is uh-huh. So it's not a matter of not. Mm-hmm. It's those. It's that binary opposition that becomes the challenge, not only in how you're, you know, trying to say the thing you mean, but probably it compromises your meaning too. So I'd, I'd try to replace it with some suggestion that goes something like this. Um, when I was uh, a boss in the death trade, and I had employees, my God, what a strange day that was. Uh, one of them I found out was out in the world teaching what I was teaching her. And what, you know, she didn't ask me about this. She just began to do it. And so I asked her uh, what was, what it was that she was teaching just so I had a sense of, you know, what I sounded like coming out of her mouth or whether she was doing a fair job of representing what we were trying to do in that organization. And um, she said, well, I'll bring my presentation in for our next supervisory session. Great. And the first thing she does when she appears next time is, is a slide. Those are the old days, of course, slides. And in on the slide, in bold uh, type, it said, get comfortable with your discomfort. Now, if you, if you just take five seconds in that, you think, yeah, great. Isn't that exactly what we should be doing? Isn't that the wholeness you you and Jung were just talking about. Well, let's see. Let's look at what the real orthodoxy of the observation is. You're, you're uncomfortable or you're discomforted by some circumstance. Obviously, this is a death trade, so we're talking about the dying of a fellow human being and what it can do to you and so on. She acknowledges discomfort, but her solution for the discomfort is what? Comfort. She's still trafficking in comfort. See, that becomes the way out of the dilemma. Not discomfort, but secretly subverting discomfort until you're comfortable again. As if comfortable is the only way to function. So, you could tell by the way I'm saying this, that my suggestion is no. The exercise of dominion has a thousand faces, but it only has two or three or four tones to it. And each one of them deliver you back to the idea that you must maintain some kind of fairly strident uh, dominion and control over how your lack of control gets understood and manifest. Rather, if you look at your body, if you're willing to regard, I don't mean in the mirror, which is, can be a brutal experience. I just mean, think of it as you sit at the table now, as I'm doing, look down at this 
noble conveyance that will soon enough betray you fundamentally. And ask yourself whether or not the, the um, gradual diminishments, or sometimes it's not gradual, of course, the gradual diminishments that attend having a body are some kind of insult to the part of you that you imagine is not being diminished accordingly. In other words, you lament your joint weakness or whatever it is, but you, but you imagine that your sense of self has no such thing as joint weakness or you know, arthritis or uh, shortness of breath or, or anything of the kind. Of course, what I'm suggesting to you is especially your sense of self has this um, sequence of diminishments available to it and, um, and it exercises them with some remarkable dexterity from time to time. Uh, if you're alert, if you're not alert to these things, every one of these things is an insult. So you never, when, when you were in your time of peak physical capacity, you never talked about your physical capacities as some kind of limitation or insult. So how does it come to pass when you don't have everything you want physically? Now you're being insulted. Now you're being diminished. Now you're not enjoying the fullness of your life. Now it's not your life anymore. And on and on we could go. Hmm. So you can hear from, from this, the, the sense of entitlement that goes along with the mania for self-improvement is, uh, is staggeringly arrogant and so unwilling to live by the deal. The deal being you're here for a while, leave the place better than you found it, period. I, I love that. I love leave the place better than you found it. Yeah, um, me too. Yeah. I'm going to ask you uh, one more question just because I know um, I don't want to take up your, your whole afternoon here. Okay. Um, I'd love for you to, to talk a little bit about um, the, the albums that you have, Dark Roads and Rough Gods. And um, I'd also, especially after our, our conversation about, you know, creative expression and maybe approaching endeavors that are, are, are artistic uh, as a citizen, maybe share about these albums as well through that lens a bit. Okay. Um... Well, you've pretty much hit the nail on the head right away. Mm -hmm. um, the undertaking of these two records was, to a certain degree, it was forced upon us. We had a 70-city, four-continent tour lined up for this year. Needless to say, it all got canceled in deg by degree, right? And um, all of a sudden, we were quite uh, without prospects. But we had already decided we were going to see about composing some new things. We had been on the road for quite a while. And one of the records we just released, the one called Dark Roads, is a document from the road. It's a sequence of live recordings from various tours we did in 2019. But uh, Rough Gods, though, that was the one that we gave ourselves the task of, of composing things. Now, you're talking to a 66-year-old guy here. So it's not, uh, 
it's not common for somebody 66 to decide to hit the road with a rock and roll band. At least I hope it's not common. It would be embarrassing if it were common. And uh, what, what, we've done, what we've done, I'll say it differently. So if you've had a practice over you know, decades that includes um, wondering about the things that you and I have talked about over the last hour, which in my case, luckily it has. If you have some idleness forced upon you, it often becomes the opportunity for things that your busyness has banished to come back to you and to become more available than they were when you were occupied with a lot of self-direction, which touring requires and performing, frankly, requires. This is a long-winded way of saying that if you're lucky and if you're patient and if you're listening and if you've, um, if you've played by the rules of the deal that we just described a few minutes ago, it can happen that the particular trials and travails of your time insinuate themselves into your thinking, into your perceptual apparatus, into your body. And your job is not to invent, it's to translate. And I'm telling you, that's what I think we've done in this Rough God's Record, is that we've translated something of the oncomingness of what's turned out to be a plague. We conceived of this in January and February of this year, before we'd heard of any of this stuff and uh, began to record in earnest, probably the end of February. We were in a kind of monastic existence for several weeks. And when we came out of it, we had the bass recordings of all my parts pretty much recorded on a standing out 10 or 11 o'clock at night on a porch overlooking a valley in central Oaxaca with the dogs barking in the distance in the village and so on. And when we began to hear about what was happening through, through the news, we looked at each other with some kind of strange realization that we had been taking some kind of dictation from trouble that the world was not quite yet alert to in the global scale that it's, that it's come to since. So I don't say that we're particularly unusually skilled in this matter. I say that we exercise the full obligation of our citizenship for a brief but intense period of time and then tried to score it um, so, uh, musically. And that's what the record is. And, uh, you know, that's a lot to lay on a, a piece of vinyl or uh, eight or so um, pieces that are in there. But um, I listened to it from start to end for the first and perhaps the last time, maybe four or five days ago when I was doing the dishes in the kitchen. And I looked up from it. And when I was done, I picked up the phone and called my partner in this project, Gregory Hoskins, and he wasn't in. So I left a brief message that said, I just listened to, uh, to uh, Rough Gods in its entirety. And I just want to say, I love it. Thanks to you. And that's what I would say to you. I, I love it. And if that sounds intemperate, oh, well, <laughs> I, I do. 
It's not mean I'm going to listen to it every day for the rest of my life. I won't because that would turn it into something nostalgic, right? But I was there and I was still and I listened. And uh, if you get a chance to hear it, I think you'll hear those qualities as well as you'll hear a lot of the concerns that you've heard from me over the course of this interview. And uh, I'm not expressing myself much at all. I, I'm not sure that I have much to express. I, I ran out of opinions when I was working in the death trade, basically. And all I have left now is reportage. In other words, I know myself to be a fairly faithful witness to my time. And that's my act of radical citizenship translated into a, a, a musical act that goes on the road when it can. So I'm a lucky man to have lived this long and not to be sitting looking out the window wondering what my life has turned into or been reduced to or, you know, I'm exceedingly lucky and this is what I'm doing with my luck. Well, after hearing you speak about the work on, on this album, I'm really looking forward to listening to it this evening um, when I return home from teaching because hearing you speak about it um, adds another layer to, uh, to what I expect the experience will be like. So thank you for that. Well, thank you too. And thank you for your time. And thank you again for the, the work you've done. As I said in the beginning, it, 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 is, it has stirred me quite a bit. So I feel really fortunate to have had this time with you to, to ask some questions and, and hear your thoughts. You know, likewise, and with, I hope this doesn't sound just automatic, hmm. like right back at you kind of thing. But the simple truth of the matter is, I don't know if you can imagine what it may, might be like. How old are you, if you don't mind me asking? Uh, I turned 36 yesterday. Okay, so we're basically, I'm basically twice as old as you. It's more or less. And if you can imagine being twice as old as you are, with twice as much stuff gathered around you, twice as much mayhem, twice as many bad decisions, you know, and so on and so on, as well as all the good stuff, try to imagine it. And then imagine that you live in a time that has so little regard for accumulated human experience, so little regard for the old institution called elderhood, everyone being self-directed and maniacally so, and that someone half your age comes to you occasionally and simply wants to hear from you. They might nudge you in a particular direction or two, but that's what they really want is to know that it hasn't always been the way it is and it's not the way it is everywhere, even now. And rather than looking to someone, you know, very young, fresh, unimpaired by the current circumstances, for a moment, somebody looks to someone, you know, antique by comparison. Um, what do they call it when in those clothing stores? Uh, um, vintage, that's the vintage, word I'm looking for. Yeah. Someone who's vin <laughs> vintage and all of that. And, uh, and they give you an opportunity for your life to appear again. 
that's what you've done by asking me to talk with you. So please don't think that the honor is, is a one-way street or that the sense of um, uh, the moment uh, is one that I delivered and that you received. Rather, it's something that by virtue of your curiosity and your, your deep concern about the, the times that we're in and my, uh, my sort of mirroring of that, between the two of us, we may have come up with something that some people who are listening might found, find uh, compelling, undoing, unnerving, or nerving. And if we've done that, we earned our keep, at least for today. So here are a few things about the early days. I'd never say them out loud, but I'm gonna tell you some things that I'd never say out loud. Nights of grief and mystery. I didn't know what that was or what it meant or what was coming down the road towards me when I first said it. Who'd come to anything called grief and mystery? That didn't sound good at first. But it sounded right, though, and it sounded just. It sounded like the world that I was born to. I knew that. And it took me a while to see it plainly. Welcome. That's what the whole thing was. Like it or not, whether it's your idea to be here or not, welcome. This invocation came all at once, and not from me. It was a roll call of the worthy, a blessing of a kind. They were telling me how to welcome them. So each night, I have to say it for the first time. This was about endings, and it was about these very days. That's all I knew, grief, mystery. You know, if you see enough dying, you'll see not dying too. And seeing that will make you choose. By then, I'd seen dying, and I'd seen not dying, plenty of it. When the time came, I was going to end. That's all you can decide on. Mystery. Mystery takes the rest. said that many times over the last few years. I meant it every time. Most people in the house thought that I was talking to them, but I was talking to dead people. And to some of the world, 
that my life had been battered and bettered by. Ghosts and rough gods. That's who I had in mind. See, I wanted them to befriend us, to be in our corner. I knew that we needed their help, their eyes upon us, because we were headed for the crossroads, out beyond the edge of any town, where the deals go down, where the bones are cast, where the fates are dealt. You see, they know the territory. They know where we're headed. We're headed to where the monsters are. And there are monsters. That's what our age is telling us, or trying to tell us. There is such a thing as monsters. They're the old gods that have been left to themselves. because prayers aren't promises, that's why. I don't know if the old ones heard it, maybe not. Maybe they've got other business. Or maybe, maybe some of us have opted out already, exercised our right to disbelieve in anything. So our old ones, well, they don't get the call. So how shall it be now, what shall we say? The call, the summons, the plea is gone out. Better that we make as many a thing. Hands there in the rafters, hands in the balance. As if how we are with each other is how the Lord's chance will be with us. As if what we say this very evening brings in the saints and the ancients of days or brings down the darkness and the rough gods. Uh, this is the easy part. Things have gone black and white now. Not simple, just clearer. What's it gonna be, friends? Saints or darkness? Everything matters now. Everything depends on how we carry ourselves, what we say. There's pressure there, and there's affliction, and there's travail, that's true. But the spirit work of our time is there. Rise up like we're persons of consequence. Not duck our heads like we're persons of interest. We're going to be somebody's ancestors someday. Rough gods. Well, they're the dark road dwellers who were left off the guest list a long time ago. 
their trouble. Welcome goodness, cosmic constant of ours. All our frailties, all our undoings, all our endings. Welcome to that one true glory of your life. That cannot wither, cannot age, cannot cannot fall down. Ah, the cosmic constant. All these endings without end. Be inhuman, but for a while. That's our deal. That you must count on. No hero's journey, not now. We're unsteady pilgrims, and we're playing for time. Welcome to that plea from all your unsuspected kin, trudging that lost nation road even now. We are modern, and we are homeless, and we are confused by freedom. And so we've left them to themselves, or to each other, or to their God, as we ourselves seem now to Lost Nation Road. That's your dead I'm speaking of. It's your unsuspected kin, mine, out there in the dark now. It's all pagan stuff. And us with our freedom. That's the sad part, the confusing part, I suppose. What we've done with our ability to decide, with what's been entrusted to us. There are more of us than ever. We're more on our own than ever. Welcome to your one true love Wrangled from all the promises And all the betrayals And all the updates Welcome to your own past. It isn't gone, though. It needs a place. There at the table. Back in the day, she was part promise, part betrayal, part octane. She'd say the same of me. It's a wonder that any of us make it through. Welcome to the catastrophe. To that old road we're going down into the mystery days A road created and made by those who came before Whose longing after life made a path Through the easy terrors and the boredom without end Into life Who love being alive as much as anyone here For all 
here before us and it's their wandering that made a path an old braided something and we follow it and we're alone sometimes and sometimes we're more than alone and that's when we start bargaining for more time or for more anything but you're dead though and my dead There's no Neverland for them. Because we're their holy ground. And they are ours. We're their latest, greatest chance to get it right. And they are our reason why. So there's holy ground. And there are companions. And there's a dark road. And it's us. And it's now. And it's this. Let's go. Cool. 